Well, it is my joy today. It's a special day for me uh, to introduce our guest speaker, C.J. Mahaney, because this is someone, if you've ever wondered, how did Brad get this way? The main answer is Jesus. So start there and stay there. But if you've been alive at all, you know God uses people. Does he not? God changes us, but he uses people. And I'm standing on the shoulders of some people. I am the way I am because of some people. Our church, you may not know this, but our church is shaped and influenced and has a certain aroma and a DNA because of some people. And C.J. Mahaney is one of those people at the top of the list. This is how this happened. In 1997, I was sitting in my basement bedroom that was headquarters, worldwide headquarters for Grace Fellowship Church. (laughs) Answering the phone, hello, Grace Fellowship. When a flyer came across my desk. There was just a hundred or so of us meeting at Turkey Foot Middle School. How many of you were there in 1997? Thank you for all ten of you still here. Good. (laughs) And, And I was excited about planting a church... But there were several things on my heart, and one of them was, I was reformed. Doctrines of grace. God is sovereign. He's big. He elects, and yet he calls us to preach this gospel, and he's drawing people to himself. And so, as I got around sound doctrine, I loved it. I thought it was biblical, but often it was kind of dead. The people were dead. The singing was dead. The attitude was dead. So I would go to charismatic kind of stuff just to see life. And hear stupid things said on a regular basis that I had to wade through. But I was like, oh, it's so good to be with people who actually act like Jesus is alive. I want some of this. And I I always thought, could these two rivers not merge into one great river with, yes, we have sound doctrine. And yes, we want to be passionate. And we want to be alive and we want God to engage us and it's not inappropriate to actually lift your hands and to respond and to be excited about Jesus. And so this flyer came across my desk and and it was titled a passion for God's glory for a conference. I was like, this sounds reformed, the glory of God. This sounds alive. P words there, passion. Yay. And I went all by myself to that conference and It changed my life. I said, yes, this is what I've been looking for. I went to everything that I could, their worship conference, their leadership conference. I started getting their CDs. We started singing their songs. By God's grace, and he'd be the first to tell you, CJ would be the first to tell you, God saved him. He planted a church, and that church also began to write its own music, and and we have been so influenced. You may not have known it. But we found songs that were sound theologically that weren't just the same little ditty being repeated over and over. Scripture was being taken and there'd be four or five verses plus it was a good song. We started singing their music, started reading their books. How many of you have read The Cross-Centered Life, the little orange book? Oh my, look at that. CJ wrote that. He wrote Humility, True Greatness. I think it's the best book in writing today on that subject. There's a lot of books that tell you, ooh, Pride's bad. Be careful. The Bible told us that already. His book says, how? How would I actually be killing pride and be cultivating humility for a lifetime intentionally? It is marvelous. It changed my life. I heard him do that in a message at a leadership conference. And I took the CD and I listened to it over and over, hitting pause and wrote the whole thing down. I was so impacted. Then he came out with the book, and I'm like, duh, there it is, the whole book. (laughs) I didn't have to spend three days doing that, but it did change my life. You don't have to do that. You can buy the book, Humility, True Greatness. And so I am so grateful to have someone. You don't often get to actually have someone that you stand on their shoulders. He never knew I existed until a couple years ago. So he's impacted me from afar. We never knew each other, and we had the chance to meet just a couple years ago. And now, in the grace of God, he's in Louisville planting a church. He's the pastor of Sovereign Grace Church in Louisville. Uh, He's married to Carolyn. They have three married daughters. They have one son. They have 12 grandchildren. CJ loves Christ, loves people, loves the local church. As I've been pushing with you, with all its mess, with all its difficulties, it's still the place he loves. And he loves sound doctrine. And that's so 
rare. So CJ, it's our privilege to have you. Help me welcome my friend CJ Mahaney. My privilege to be here. Mm. <laughs> introductions are overwhelming. Gracious. Oh my. Okay, so like I have things I want to say prior to preaching, but am I then penalized? Is that taken off the sermon? This like you we're going to have to talk before the next service. Your introductions are really kind. They really are. Thank you. And they're overwhelming. Um, and one has to work to maintain composure. Um, uh, because it, it is. It's like somebody backing up a dump truck of encouragement, identifying evidences of grace in your life, and uh, communicating that through words. So thank you, my friend. Very, very meaningful. But So I see that thing. It's ticking, isn't it? That clock's going. And I... And I <laughs> I don't, I don't think I should be penalized for this. I think, I think this should be extra time, like in a soccer game. Added on. <laughs> okay, uh, just a couple things. Uh, uh, yes, I did write a book on humility. I do hope it serves. You just need to know, I believe it's in the first paragraph, other than the verses in the book, it's the most important sentence I wrote. I am a proud man pursuing humility by the grace of God. So you just need to know that. That's, that's who wrote that's who wrote that book. Uh, it, it's just a pure joy to be. Who wouldn't want to be here? Like, who wouldn't want to be in this church? This is one happy church. Uh, and I've heard all about you, so I've been really excited to be here. Uh, and I, I've heard about you from your pastor. To, to interact with Brad is to, uh, even in casual conversation, very soon hear about you and his love for you. So, uh, and all he's told me is true from all I've experienced. So it's a privilege to be here. I respect your pastor. This isn't a paid political announcement and a response to what he said. Um, I respect this man. I, I, I respect him. He's got theological discernment. Uh, he's got courage. Uh, he has a passion for the local church, but not just the local church in general. You, this church in particular. Um, so, he, yeah, very appropriate. Very appropriate. Pastors of local churches are my heroes. It's just, it's too common for Christians to assign to individuals who are authors or who speak at conferences, who are more well-known, to assign to them an appreciation that should only be assigned to local pastors who are laying down their lives for the church. So, uh, listen, thank you for your encouragement today, but I'll be gone in a matter of hours. This guy, this team, they stay. So make sure, and you're doing this, that you hold them in the highest esteem and not someone else. Thank you very much. You're already doing that, and I appreciate that. And look at that clock. It just continues to go. (laughs) Thank you. This is a privilege. Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Mark. Chapter 7. Brad has given me permission to preach a different sermon. I'm really grateful for that. He said the small groups are off during the summer. Uh, I'm, I'm just not, I'm not wired well to preach the same sermon three times. And I deeply, deeply respect Brad for doing that Sunday after Sunday. So just wired a bit differently. And I just appreciate him accommodating me. Uh, so... This is a different sermon than the previous service, and I would anticipate I'm going to preach a different sermon in the next service as well. And, and somehow I'm hoping if I just preach enough sermons to you, one will, will, will serve you. Um, Mark chapter 7, I'm going to begin reading in verse 31. The title of this message is simply, A Beautiful, Unusual Miracle. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released. 
And he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. In his book, The Cross from a Distance, Atonement in Mark's Gospel, author Peter Bolt helps us to understand the uniqueness of the passage we are considering this morning and why Mark includes this story in his gospel. Mr. Bolt writes, Throughout Mark's gospel, a range of characters appear in the story, encounter Jesus, then disappear again. From among these minor characters, a group of 13 can be separated out and labeled the suppliants. Mark pays greater attention to these suppliants, giving each of them a whole scene where their story is told. These are the ones who come to Jesus with a need for healing or exorcism, which Jesus meets. This group of 13 suppliants shows us a slice of life in the first century world. Despite their variety, together they illustrate, listen, they illustrate a world in great need. A world under the shadow of death. And they also show that the Jewish religion was completely unable to help them in their need. In fact, it probably even made their situation worse by excluding them as unclean and so making God seem even further away. This morning, Mark introduces us to one of the 13, a minor character in Mark's gospel, a man in great need, a man Jesus encounters while intentionally making his way through Gentile territory, a man that Jewish religion was unable to help and would consider unclean, for he was a Gentile, a man who no doubt felt God was far away and not concerned about his suffering. And that perception, that perception was all about to change on this day as he unexpectedly encounters God himself, who he will discover is not far away, but had drawn near through the incarnation and would demonstrate his personal care for this man in the midst of his suffering. This man, this man simply could not imagine what was going to take place as he awakened that morning yet again to the sound of silence. And Mark gives him a whole scene, a whole scene where his story is told. So this morning, we're going to spend some time with one of the minor characters in Mark's gospel. And though he will quickly disappear, we will soon forget him. However, we will not forget the Son of God, who is the centerpiece of this story. So let's turn our attention to what Sinclair Ferguson describes as one of the most beautiful, as well as perhaps one of the most unusual of all the miracles. And this beautiful, unusual miracle takes place surprisingly on Gentile soil. Notice in verse 31, Mark intentionally provides us with Jesus' travel itinerary. Jesus was intentionally journeying into Gentile territory. Now that began actually in verse 24 and it continues. It continues following his conflict with the Pharisees. So just for a little context, chapter 7 verses 1 through 23 is a serious conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees and scribes. So when Mark mentions in verse 31, Tyre, Sidon, and the region of the Decapolis, he is emphasizing and intentionally emphasizing that Jesus is journeying deep into Gentile territory. And this journey is 
is filled with symbolism and significance. It is, in effect, a refutation of the Pharisees and the scribes and their understanding of the Gentiles as defiled and unclean. And it's a loud statement of his inclusion of the Gentiles in his mission. Actually, this is a return visit to this particular region. And the reception that he experiences on his return visit to the region of the Decapolis is actually quite the contrast with his experience on his first visit. His first visit was in chapter 5, and it was a brief and a memorable one when he encountered the Gadarene demoniac. Moved with compassion, Jesus authoritatively cast out that man's demons, he delivered that man from the tormenting effect of that legion of demons. And following that dramatic deliverance of this man, the people of that region who then are informed of this and gather to observe this man post-deliverance are described as frightened of Jesus rather than grateful for Jesus. And in one of the saddest verses in all of scripture we read, they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Jesus responds to their request, and along with his disciples, he gets into the boat to depart, and the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, no, you go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And the man went away, and he began to proclaim, listen, in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. So it's certainly possible, if not probable, that this favorable reception by the crowds on Jesus' return visit was the fruit and effect of that once demonized man (laughs) now proclaiming how much the Lord had done for him since Jesus had departed. So it would appear that the first Gentile missionary is getting it done. For on Jesus' return visit, a crowd has gathered and a request for healing is made. Verse 32, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment and they begged him to lay his hand on him. This deaf man with a speech impediment was brought to Jesus by friends. Friends who obviously deeply cared for this man. What, what, what a gift their friendship was. They, they were true friends. They were true friends doing life with this guy, not simply Facebook friends. Yeah. And apart from their care, apart from their care and help, this would not have happened. And I give thanks that this church is filled with those kind of friends. And your pastor is that kind of friend to me. And then in verses 33 through 35, we have this this most unusual manner of ministry by Jesus. Surely you noticed this. Surely you've read this before and wondered about this. So Mark describes Jesus' manner of ministry in this miracle with this extraordinary vividness and this attention to detail. So there's six actions described. Jesus takes him aside from the crowd privately. He puts his fingers in his ears. After spitting, he touches the man's tongue. Then Jesus looks up to heaven. Jesus sighs. And then he says, be opened. Now, up to this point in Mark's gospel, there has been no demonstrative method, no demonstrative method of personal ministry by Jesus bearing any resemblance to what we read here. So it, it begs the question, what is going on here? Why all this? Why all this? Because none of this is necessary. None of this is necessary to heal this man. Actually, you could just refer to the previous healing. The Syrophoenician woman's daughter who came to beg and appeal that Jesus cast the demon out of her daughter. Jesus cast that demon out with a word. Daughter's not even present. 
So what's going down here, beginning in verse 31? It, it's not necessary for him to heal this man. So why? Why all this? I'll tell you why all this. All of this was an expression of his care for this man. That's why all this. He does this in order to communicate with a man Listen, in order to communicate with a man who is deaf in a language the man could understand. In effect, a form of sign language. Jesus enters this man's world of silence and he graciously and personally and quietly cares for him and heals him. So notice the details. He begins, verse 33 by taking him aside from the crowd privately. So he separates this man from the crowd. He separates this man from the crowd. Why? Because he does not want this man to be distracted by the crowd. Doesn't want this man to be distracted by the crowd. And he doesn't want him to feel embarrassed in any way in front of the crowd because Jesus knows this man is uncomfortable in this crowd. Helen Keller said... Blindness separates people from things. Deafness separates people from people. This man was familiar with separation from people. Of course he was. He can't hear. And not only, he can't hear and he can't speak. So he's familiar with separation from people people. He's not comfortable with people. He's not comfortable with a crowd because he can't hear and he can't speak. So his, his deafness has separated him from people. He, he's not comfortable with people. Je- Jesus knows this. He knows this and his care for him is personal it's gentle, it's sensitive, it's, it's understanding. Jesus bears no resemblance to a modern-day faith healer who specializes in exploiting people publicly. Now, this, this is a compelling illustration and demonstration of Jesus' love for the individual. In Mark chapter 6, we read that Jesus saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So in Mark 6, Mark draws our attention to his compassion for a great crowd Here in Mark 7, Mark draws our attention to his love for the individual. James Edwards in his commentary writes, By himself, the needy man is simply another face in a crowd of Gentiles. But in removing him from the crowd, Jesus signifies that he is not simply a problem, but a unique individual. A unique individual that Jesus cares for and about. So he, he isolates him from the crowd so he wouldn't be distracted by the crowd or uncomfortable because of the crowd. And then, and then he prepares this man for the miracle that he is about to perform. He speaks to this man in a language that this man can understand. He, Jesus acts out for the man what he intends to do to the man. So he, in effect, speaks to him by touching him. This is why he touched him. This is why he put his fingers into his ears. And then after spitting, apparently on his hand, he touches his tongue. Now listen, this, you read this, it's certainly, particularly the spitting aspect, it certainly, it seems strange to us. Okay, and, and so there's no concern. Your pastors have no plan to adopt this approach when they are praying for you, okay? <laughs> so it seems strange to us, but the scholars smart guys who serve us so well with their commentaries, they they inform us that at this time and in this culture, the use of spittle in healing is well documented. So though this is strange to us, this would not be strange to this man, not be strange or unusual to him at all. Jesus is caring for him and Jesus is preparing him for the miracle he is about to perform. For in a matter of moments, he's going to restore his hearing and his speech. And he is preparing him. 
He is, in effect, alerting him to the miracle that he is about to perform. So his touch is an expression of his compassion. It's a form of communication that this man so privately pulls him aside. And now he's touching him and he's he's communicating that in a way that this guy can comprehend. He's about to perform a miracle that only he can perform. Then, Then Mark draws our attention in verse 34. Jesus looks up to heaven. What's going on here? He's looking up to heaven. Well, listen, that glance, that glance heavenward, that directs this man's attention to God. To God and to God alone who was able to do this for him. Jesus Jesus wanted this guy to be clear. This isn't magic. A glance heavenward. God is about to heal you. And then it gets even more unusual if possible. He sighed. He sighs. Mark wants us to know that. When when Mark draws our attention to Jesus' emotions, he's very selective. So we best listen up. We best pay attention. There's a purpose. Jesus sighs. Why is he sighing? He knows he is about to heal this man. So why the sigh? Why wouldn't he be smiling? Why wouldn't Jesus' expression of emotion be one of joy? In anticipation of the healing that is about to occur. In anticipation of the celebration that is about to ensue. I mean, mean, shouldn't he be smiling? Shouldn't it say, Jesus looked heavenward Then Jesus smiled. No. Jesus sighed. Why would he sigh? Well, it would appear his sighing is the appropriate response of the Holy One when observing the effects of the fall and the ravages of sin. His sigh is an expression of grief for those suffering because of the fall. He he sighs because he is moved by this man's condition. He is not indifferent to this man's condition. He is affected, deeply affected by this man's condition. He sighs. He sighs because this man is a reminder of why he came. He sighs because this man is a reminder of why he came and what he came to do in giving his life as a ransom for many. So he feels the weight. He observes the effect of sin. Just before he heals him. Takes that in. And he saw. Finally, he speaks. Mark translates this for non-Jewish readers like us. Be opened. Don't you love it? That's all it takes. That's all it takes. (laughs) That's all it takes. Be opened. The effect is instantaneous. Jesus speaks to the organs of hearing and speech. And once again, yet again, in Mark's gospel, his unique authority and power is on full display. Verse 35, and his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. Oh my. Brothers and sisters, I mean, let's just pause for a moment. What was that scene like? What must that scene have been like? What must this have been like for this guy? And what must this have been like for those who are present and observing? And how did they respond? Now, I, I'm, I'm very grateful for all the details that Mark provides. But, but following the miracle, I, I, I personally, I would like to have a little more detail. It seems like Mark leaves the scene following the miracle to our imaginations, at least somewhat. It, it is obvious that joyful pandemonium broke out. Look in verse 36. Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. I mean, that this, this verse has a real serious, humorous feel to it. Listen, this, 
A spectacular miracle had just occurred. And Jesus is attempting to restrain them. And every attempt to restrain them appears to only have provoked them to celebrate and proclaim what he did even more. There was no restraining this group. How are you going to restrain this guy? Imagine this guy. Imagine Jesus saying this guy. I Listen, <laughs> I want to charge you. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> How am I supposed to do that? I can talk now. I can hear now. They're going to notice back in the village. This is like not going to escape their notice. Not tell them what you just did for me. I'm going to tell everybody. (laughs) And oh my, imagine his friends. Imagine if you were one of his friends who brought him. And you begged Jesus. Would you please, would you please lay your hand on my friend? And then Jesus turns and takes your friend away privately. Oh my, wouldn't you just be filled with anticipation? And then your friend can hear, and your friend can talk. Pandemonium would have broken out. Jumping and yelling and screaming. And I mean, if I was his friend, I would have been saying to him repeatedly, say something else. Just say something else. You talk. And in the midst of this, Jesus is saying, listen, I don't, I don't want you to tell anybody what just happened. And they're just like a pause. There's no way we can't tell anybody. So there's a humorous feel to this. And I don't have any doubt that the celebration went on late into the evening. Imagine this crowd making its way back to the village. You could hear them from a distance. So what's up with the Lord? Like what's up with the Lord kind of raining on the, party in the parade. Like, why, why would he charge them? And he didn't just charge them. The more he charged them. And it wasn't a suggestion. It was a command. Here's why. He didn't want any publicity. He didn't want any publicity because he didn't want to be perceived as simply a miracle worker. And he did not want there to be any politically informed messianic expectations of an insurrection. Listen, that might hinder him from his mission, which was to make his way to a hill called Calvary. So he's very serious when he makes eye contact with them and says, I don't want you to tell anybody what just happened because I don't want publicity. I don't want there to be a groundswell of expectation that I have come to oppose and overthrow Roman oppression. It's not why I've come. I've come to address a much more serious matter. I've come to address the most serious matter. I've come. I've come to be the wrath-absorbing, sin-bearing substitute for your sins. That's why I've come. And the kind of publicity generated from a miracle like this would be decidedly unhelpful as I make my way to a hill called Calvary. That's certainly Jesus' intent. He does not desire, he does not seek notoriety, but there is simply no way to keep these works concealed. I mean, you're just talking about a culture with the complete absence of modern medicine. And Jesus is going about healing lepers 
the deaf are hearing, speaking, the blind are seeing, demonized people are set free. There's no way to contain that because there's something moving now in the hearts of the populace that didn't exist prior to his arrival. It's a strange sensation called hope. Hope. The medical profession offered them little or no hope. But now word is spreading. Have you heard? Have you heard Jesus of Nazareth? is moving about. He has authority and power unlike anyone previous. So there's no way to conceal this. There's no way to contain this. And now, <laughs> now there's two guys loose in the Decapolis. Yeah, now you got the Gadarene demoniac. He's still loose. And now this guy's being added as well. What are they doing? They are loose telling everyone how much the Lord has done for them and how he has had mercy on them. And this entire event has been unfolding and it's been building and it's all been unfolding and building for the concluding verse and the concluding confession. So the final verse, verse 37, turns our attention away from the man who was healed and turns our attention solely to the centerpiece of the story, to the centerpiece of the story and the centerpiece of Mark's gospel, the Son of God. So that verse, verse 37, and the content of that verse, that's what matters most to Mark. That's what matters most to Mark because this miracle reveals the identity of Jesus as the Messiah. And the messianic significance of this healing. So the narrative intentionally concludes with a confession that draws attention to the messianic significance of the healing. William Lane writes, the choral exclamation of the crowd is the response of faith which recognizes in all the works of Jesus the promised intervention of God. There's two aspects to their confession. First, he does all things well. He has done all things well. Now, now this, this is a summary confession, and it echoes the Old Testament. It echoes the Old Testament, and it recalls Genesis 1.31, where God surveys his work at creation, and he declares them to be good. God saw everything he made that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Jesus' miracle demonstrates, and this confession confirms, that he is God the Son. Because this is yet another instance of Jesus doing what only God can do. And this confession identifies him as God the Son. So, whether it's creation or redemption, he has done all things well. Secondly, he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So this confession and celebration echoes the words of the prophet Isaiah. So centuries before this moment, Isaiah had prophesied that when the Messiah comes, when the Messiah comes, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So in verse 32... Mark references, listen, he references this man's speech impediment. He uses the word mute. Other than Isaiah 35, 6, which I just quoted. Isaiah 35, 6, this passage, they are the only times in scripture where that word is used. Mark intentionally chose that word to describe this man's condition to connect this story for the reader with Isaiah chapter 35. Mark is in effect drawing our attention to Isaiah's prophecy and he is saying then to his readers, your God has come and your God has come to save you. So Isaiah 35 celebrates the coming of God himself as the one who unstops the ears of the deaf and enables the tongue of the mute to sing for joy. Listen, 
that day in the Decapolis, those verses were fulfilled. That day in the Decapolis, the prophecy was fulfilled for the Messiah had indeed come. And part part of the big surprise is that this is all going down in Gentile territory. Gentiles will be included in the messianic blessing. That is sweet news for Gentiles like you and me. Finally, Mark notes, and they were astonished beyond measure. (laughs) You think? You think? (laughs) I mean, just imagine this scene. They were astonished beyond measure. Well, of course they were. However, it's not only these folks who should be astonished. If you're a Christian, you should be no less astonished. You should be no less astonished because each and every Christian should recognize their experience with Jesus in this story. Each and every Christian should recognize and remember when God seemed far away. Each and every Christian should remember when God drew near to you through the proclamation of the gospel to you. See, this miracle points not only to the Messiah, it also points to a more serious disability, spiritual deafness. And, And the healing of spiritual deafness is more significant and it is no less miraculous. See, see, prior to conversion, our our condition is one of spiritual deafness. Our condition is one of spiritual deafness, and we we are incapable of altering this condition. We, We really are as hopeless as this deaf man prior to his encounter with Jesus. Listen, if you, if you are a Christian, it's my joy to remind you this morning. If you are a Christian, it's because God has graciously opened your spiritual ears that were deaf because of sin, and he opened them through the proclamation of the gospel. If you are a Christian, it was, it's because at some point in time, God, at some point in time, God graciously called you out of a crowd. And God graciously spoke to you in the midst of your spiritual deafness. And God said to you, God said to you, be open. Faith came by hearing and hearing by the of God. And so this should leave all of us here this morning who are Christians astounded beyond measure. And the effect, oh my, the effect of our spiritual ears being opened... Yes, the effect of our spiritual ears being opened by the gospel is a loosened tongue. The tongue of the mute sing for joy. The tongue of the mute sing for joy. Listen, when Jesus opens a man's ears, he also frees up his tongue. He frees up his tongue for what purpose? He frees up his tongue to celebrate the gift of grace. All those whose ears have been opened by the grace of God, they are moved to speak and sing. They love to speak and sing. They love to speak and sing to God. They love to speak and sing about God. Derek Kidner says, where God is, there is singing. Yes, there is. There is singing like you have been singing this morning. Listen, when the Son of God opens someone's spiritual ears, what does he do? He immediately gives them a new song to sing. And our singing really should continue uninterrupted. Uninterrupted. And by the way, let me commend you. Just, just listening to your singing. It's a privilege to be here, to participate with you and sing, to add, add my voices to song. But at different times in the singing, I, I, just, I just stop to listen and to feel God's pleasure as I'm, I'm, I'm here with a fresh assembly of people who, who have... Who have God has drawn near to them, drew them out of the crowd individually, proclaimed the gospel to them, opened their spiritually deaf ears, and then gave their mute tongue a song to sing. What a privilege it is to be in your midst and to hear you over 
just to overhear you singing. And that, that singing, that singing that characterizes you individually as a church, that singing should, should just go on and continue uninterrupted, regardless of the season of life we find ourselves. So if you find yourself in the midst of prosperity today, James 5.13 would say this to you. Is anyone cheerful? Well, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Oh, there's a wealth of grace and wisdom in that little exhortation. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Well, wait a second. If he's cheerful, why would he have to be encouraged to sing praises? Well, because when we're cheerful, it means we're in the midst of prosperity. And so then we're vulnerable to become complacent and forget that it was God who graciously provided that prosperity. Therefore, let him who is cheerful do what? You need to be singing. You need to be singing to the God who has graciously provided the prosperity you're singing. So if you, are, if you are in the midst of prosperity, oh, it's most appropriate for you to sing and be singing and be lifting up your voice as loud and as consistently as you can. But singing is appropriate if you're suffering as well. We're to be singing in the midst of prosperity and in the midst of adversity. So if, if you find yourself in the midst of adversity, I just want to encourage you, just want to remind you, your, your tongue actually has been especially loosened to sing in this season as well. God hasn't left you without a song to sing in a season of suffering. And if my historical hero, Charles Spurgeon, was present, I think here's what he'd say to us. Any man can sing when his cup is full of delights. The believer alone has songs when waters of a bitter cup are wrung out to him. Any sparrow can chirp in the daylight. It is only the nightingale that can sing in the dark. Children of God, whenever the enemies seem to prevail over you, whenever the serried ranks of the foe appear sure of victory, here's Spurgeon's counsel. It's formed by scripture. Then begin to do what? Then begin to sing, he says. Oh, your victory will come with your song. It is a very puzzling thing to the devil to hear saints sing when he sets his foot on them. He cannot make it out. The more he oppresses them, the more they rejoice. Let us, Spurgeon says, resolve to be all the merrier when the enemy dreams that we are utterly routed. Feel utterly routed this morning? Purpose by the grace of God to be all the merrier. Lift up your voice in song. The more opposition, the more we will rejoice in the Lord. The more discouragement, the more confidence. And finally, we can, we can, join, we can join them in singing. And we can join them in saying, he has done all things well. Okay? Ponder that for a moment. That's what they said that day. He has done all things well. Well, I'm saying that's no less true of my life. I'm saying that's no less true of your life. I think that statement is a wonderful summation that reflects our experience of God and of his grace. He has done all things well. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to let J.C. Ryle finish this sermon. Let J.C. Ryle pastor our hearts. Let J.C. Ryle apply this statement, this confession, this proclamation. He has done all things well with these words. Let us remember as we look back over the days past in our lives from the hour of our conversion... Our Lord has done all things well in first bringing us out of darkness into marvelous light, in placing us where we are. Okay, listen, we just have to pause. It's just so appropriate for us to just take a couple of moments before we conclude to just look back over the past days in our lives from the hour of our conversion because our Lord has done all things well. So where do we begin? He brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light because of his son's sacrifice on the cross as your substitute for and with your sin, satisfying the wrath of God and securing your forgiveness of sins.
He has done all things well. Well done. He continues, though, in placing us where we are. Oh, my. Come on. This is going to be easy for you. Capture this. Look at where he's placed you. You're in a pretty sweet place. Look at where he's placed you. Here. What a happy place to be placed. Why are you here? Oh, he placed you here. What should my response be? Oh, you should be saying, he's done all things well. Well, but see, I'm not sure you're, you're aware of all that's going on here. Sure, sure I am. Well, how could you be aware in detail? Did Brad tell you? No, no, Brad didn't tell me anything. I, I know because I'm, I'm a thinner, in a similar way to you, that your church would be no different than my church. They, they don't come in different forms. But here's what I know. Sure, you have trials and challenges, and you are fighting besetting sin. Am I aware? Absolutely. But here's what I know. Huh, the evidences of grace here abound. They're everywhere I look here. <laughs> God is wonderfully at work here. <laughs> May you, listen, the more you're involved in this church, I pray you have eyes to perceive the countless ways God is at work here. Anybody can discern deficiencies in a church. And people at times approach, well, yeah, I see a deficiency. What, what do you think? You have some kind of like discernment? I mean, yeah, look around. So do I. I'm looking at you. Yeah, they're, they're just everywhere. Yes, there's no discernment in that. Oh, no, it takes new eyes to see grace. And let me tell you something. Just be here in a few moments. There's grace everywhere. So, Lord, you've done all things well. Of all the churches in the world where you could have placed me, you placed me here. Whoa, thank you. Ryle continues, and giving us what we have. Oh, how well everything has been done. How great the mercy that we have not had our own way. Oh, isn't that great? That is great mercy. When I think of how many prayers God hasn't answered. When I think of how many prayers I've prayed that he hasn't answered. Oh, Lord, thank you for unanswered prayer. When I prayed for my own way and you said, no way. Because that isn't going to serve you. Instead, I'm going to give you my way. For my glory and your good, let us remember it as we look forward to the days yet to come. We know not what they may be, bright or dark, many or few, but we know that we are in the hands of him who doeth all things well. He will not err in any of his dealings with us. He will take away and give. He will afflict and bereave. He will move and he will settle with perfect wisdom at the right time in the right way. Oh, the great shepherd of the sheep makes no mistakes. We shall never see the full beauty of these words till the resurrection morning. And we shall then look back over our lives and know the meaning of everything that happened from first to last. We shall remember all the way by which we were led and confess that all was well done. Oh, the why and the wherefore, the causes and the reason of everything which now perplexes will be clear and plain as the sun at noonday. And we shall wonder. We shall wonder at our past blindness And we shall marvel that we could have ever doubted our Lord's love. Let's pray. Lord, it's easy to know what to pray. We add our voices to their voices. You have done all things well in our lives. And Lord, you... You even make the deaf hear and the mute speak. You've made us to hear and given us a new song. You've done all things well. And we're so deeply grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.